Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. All right, welcome to another episode of EdTech Examined. How are you doing, Eric? I am great. I This is uh, 47, so we're closing in on 50. And what was I told? Most podcasts go away after 15 episodes. So we're like way in the clear. People didn't think we could do it. You're going to be 50 episodes in soon. And I'm just, I'm stoked that we're coming up to that. I'm trying to think of something to do for 50. We'll start planning at 47. Yeah, we should probably start thinking about it. Unlike last time, we actually have a lot that we can talk about this week. Or this yeah. month, I should say. There seems to be a, a little bit more variety in the technology in the EdTech news cycle. Um, so I, I suppose we should start with our EdTech office hours. Um, I don't have any questions from colleagues this week, uh, but in the event that we don't have questions, I try to come up with or find something of use to folks, uh, a tip. You know, in the past we've done you know video editing tips or audio editing tools, things like that. But I came across uh, an article from a blog called How To Geek. So it's a tech blog. Uh, they have a lot of step-by-step guides, uh, kind of hidden features. And the one that caught my eye was uh, titled 10 uh, Hidden Windows 10 Features You Should Be Using. So I know there's this huge excitement for everybody to uh, move on to Windows 11. I'm joking. I don't think people really care that much. Windows 10 is just fine. You should probably stick with it for a while, actually. But they had some really interesting um, tips in here. So I won't go through them all, uh, but there is a few. So for people who are working in a Windows environment, whether you're a student or an educator, there's a few things to know. First of all, they had virtual desktops. That's kind of their uh, equ- the equivalent to the multi-desktop features in the Mac where you can slide between them. So this is often a feature that in Windows that people don't know about. They kind of crowd all of their Windows around one desktop. So you can have multiple desktops and windows and you can switch between them, multiple workspaces. Uh, They had some other really interesting, I had no idea. So there is a setting or a a strategy uh, for taking notes. So if you'd like to jot down notes in Notepad, uh, there's a setting that you can enable where it'll automatically put in a timestamp into every note that you create at the very top, which was kind of interesting. Uh, they had some other things like Windows uh, has a kind of a, Apple has a backup service called uh, Time Machine, as you know, Chris, and we we both use that. Windows apparently has an equivalent uh, backup using file history. So they have a bunch of links on how to do that. Uh, they talk about how to do screen recording, which is actually built into Windows using the Xbox Game Bar applic- application. So if you have to create screencasts or uh, you know some sort of instructional videos about something that's happening on a page or a screen, you can do that. And it kind of goes on and on. Uh, one of the things that would be useful for folks who get a lot of notifications or you know, if they haven't turned them off and they don't want to see them, is something called Focus Assist. And I think Windows was actually first to this. So Apple uh, on Mac OS and all their other devices released this focus mode. And you could customize it where you could say, you know, at this time of the day, you know, these are the things that I don't get notifications for. And you could call that focus mode sleep or something like that. 
Windows has an equivalent called Focus Assist. I actually had never used this before because it's a, a Windows device isn't my primary device, but they were first for this uh, and a whole bunch of things. Nightlight, they have a clipboard history. So they had some really interesting tips on uh, Windows 10. Um, and I'm, I'm going to start using them at work because I've totally neglected them. I don't yeah, know if no, you use, win sure. do you use Windows regularly still? Uh, occasionally. I try to, there is a bit of a learning curve when you go back to it, but there are certain things, from, especially from a financial uh, side of things, they, you know, you do have to use Windows because they're, they're just much more dominant in the market. Yeah. And I would imagine that, in, especially in K-12, to like they're handing out, you know, they're deploying Windows computers on mass, not, not Apple or Linux or something like that, right? So yeah, I'm assuming this is more common. But anyways, that was, our, that was the tip that we came up with today, 10 hidden uh, Windows 10 features, and we'll, we'll link to that in the yeah. show notes. Also, yeah, apologies. It, yeah, just, it's, you, know what it, you know what the funny thing about this is? It's like there's so much press about the features that Apple comes out with, and they do a really good job of it. I'm not trying to you know, take them down. But a lot of the stuff has actually been hidden in their competitors for a long time. And I think, it, you know, this really comes down to a marketing thing. Like Microsoft is a monster company. They're in, in, in you know, enterprise company, first and foremost, rather than a consumer company, though they, their operating systems on consumer grade computers by far more popular than Mac. But, you know, they, they don't dedicate probably for resource reasons. They don't have the time to, you know, have little YouTube clip videos or they explain all of the hidden features, yet there's a lot of power features in Windows. And I've been kind of learning about more of this recently to where it's, I think there's probably a tendency to see uh, Apple's stuff is very innovative and Windows behind, but in many, in many cases, you know, Windows has had that feature standard forever and it's Apple who's caught up 10 years after the fact, right? Yeah. Well, it's the same, uh, like if you look at, let's say, uh, smartphones, for instance, like, you know, a lot of those features, let's say even uh, having it waterproof has been in Samsung yeah. for the longest time, right? Yeah. I mean, so, I don't even think the, I don't even think the iPhones have the highest water and dust resistance of the phones out there still. I think it's IP67. I think the other ones are beyond that at this point. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's interesting. But anyways, Windows 10, it's a good operating system. I use it on my uh, laptop at work. It's always been very reliable. It's quick. And I, I'm, you know, this is going to save me a ton of time, some of these features. So I'm going to try to master them. Um, did you want to move on to our, our news section? Yeah, no, for sure. So uh, one uh, uh, thing that uh, was really interesting is um, the Human Right Watch, they actually released this article about uh, how online learning products are enabling the surveillance of children. And we kind of talked about this, uh, but, you know, now there's uh, 48 governments that have recommended unsafe uh, products during the, the pandemic, according to the, the evidence that they've compiled in this article here. Yeah, it's, inter it, it's interesting because they kind of did a, a two, two series stack of evidence, I know that doesn't make any sense, two kind of examples of evidence. So they looked at 163 different products, so they don't list them all. Um, yeah. And 145 of those, which is about 89%, surveilled or had the capacity to surveil children outside of school hours. So we're talking about primarily K to 12 here. 
and then uh, you know deep into their private lives. And they said that many products were found to harvest information about children, such as I'm quoting here, who they are, uh, where they are, so that location data, uh, what they do in the classroom. Aha, I knew it. That's the business model isn't just the product. It's what they're doing with it. So that's data collection on what you're doing with their product. Um, who their family and friends are. That surprised me. Um, I'm surprised that they, the ed tech product would be able to link that back, but I, I don't know how that, that they were able to figure that out, but that's, that's what they claim and uh, what their device, their families could afford for them to use in online learning. So that that's the last one doesn't bother me as much because all software reports on the device that it's running on um, mostly for crash reporting reasons. Cause if a piece of software is crashing on a particular piece of hardware, that's actually really helpful for them to know. Uh, so that's that last one doesn't bother me too much, but this kind of works yeah. back to our prediction, doesn't it? Yeah, no, for sure. And, uh, you know, again, this is where that surveillance and the privacy, it, it just keeps coming up as a, a topic. Yeah. I just, I think that, so the concern, it's interesting because there's two concerns here. There's the concern that you, if you're in a classroom environment, you impose a product on somebody uh, that they have to use that spies on them, let's say, uh, to some degree or another. Uh, and in an educational environment, they have no choice but to engage with it. So that's bad enough. But then, and what they don't explain in the article is how far these technologies go in terms of after hours surveillance. So I guess that's that's the question I have. I'm assuming when it comes to location data, like if if, if, if kids in schools are given devices to take home, you know, it's tracking their location and following them on their, you know, walk to the bus stop and then to their house or something like that, or, you know, following them once they're picked up by their, by their parents. So that's the issue. I guess you, there's no way to opt out outside of dedicated class time, which is already a problem. Well, it's kind of surprising. Like, I don't even know why, what is the motive or the, the purpose behind collecting all this data? You can, how are they going to be able to use it? Um, in fact, in some ways, maybe it's actually opening them up for more liability. How about if something happens to that kid, uh, you know, during this uh, after hours, as you're describing? Yeah, I agree. I mean, so what is the purpose? And this is what I always think, like, what is the purpose of collecting data? So it, when a pop-up comes up on one of our computers and says, you know, do you want to share crash reports with developers? You can deny that on like say an iPhone or something, but they tell you, you know, this is to help us improve our product. If we find that, you know, our piece of our app crashes on your iPhone eight for whatever reason, that's a device that maybe that's having a problem with this. And we need to, you know, they have enough data to, to, to alert them to that. But when it comes to, you know, an online learning platform, other than crash reporting, you know, to make the website or the app or whatever software better, I wonder if this is just pure momentum. So for instance, is there a, a tendency for ed tech companies to collect data just because they've always collected data? Like if they hire engineers who worked somewhere where they collected data, they don't really think about it. They just implement a data collection because we may need it someday. Is it kind of like a hoarder mentality? <laughs> it's almost like the just data collection by default. And see, and again, that's where I don't know. I mean, I'm of the opinion with, especially for privacy, like 
you know, everything should just be right off the bat. Everything should be private. And then you have to release the information. Right. Yes. Uh, I mean, it's uh, it was interesting. I was watching a movie just uh, the other day. Um, and uh, this uh, in the, the premise of this movie, the, the person's optical optical um, retinal scan was already done. And, you know, this, the employee, like this is kind of more uh, looking at just the implications of technology, but uh, the employee question, Hey, you know, I never gave my retinal scan. They're like, Oh, well, it was in the terms of use. And we just, to make it easier for you, uh, whenever you turned on your webcam, we just captured your retinal scan that way. And so that's how we identified. And so again, like this is, it's like nobody reads the terms of use in uh, those terms of, and conditions. And they, again, I've even read articles where and st- they've done studies on this. If you were to read every single one of those agreements, it would take you years. So, yeah. you know, they just bury all this stuff. And I, I don't know, it, it just seems that why don't, why can't these companies just be a little bit more transparent and clear? And I wonder how clear the school system or how, you know, how, no offense to school systems, but how much due diligence do they look into picking these products too, right? Like, are they picked by the teachers or are they picked by the IT department? And where does that input come from and, and the rationale? Maybe they, they pick the cheapest product that's most likely to have the most data collection because that subsidizes <laughs> the loss that they're taking on the rest of their business, right? There's a, there's a, there's, it's an t- upfront cost is cheaper, but there's a long-term cost, right? And so I, it's interesting. It'd be interesting to know as a sec, a secondary uh, article, who chooses uh, ed tech tools, like who is the primary kingmaker, so to speak, when it comes to choosing one product over another and how often is privacy pushed to the side over price? Mm-hmm. My guess is a lot, but yeah, I'm probably. pessimistic. Um, we had another one. Uh, so this was from the Economic Times of India. And the article was titled, uh, Why EdTech Needs a Deep Renovation. So this is interesting. So there's a lot of, uh, I guess, excitement about education technology, particularly since COVID, because it's, there's been so much investment in the field. And we've covered this. And well, we did a presentation from McGraw-Hill, and they, we talked about uh, some of some of the growth, even pre-pandemic, was showing a lot of growth, and so there's all this excitement around this. But of course, right now we're seeing major layoffs in the technology industry because, I mean, the the figures have come out. Uh, nobody has declared a technical recession in the United States. I don't know where Canada is. We're usually not too far behind, but you know, if companies start laying off <laughs> large percentages of their workforce long before the numbers come out, you can bet that they have similar economic indicators that present a bad situation. So there's a lot of, even though that the ed tech market is growing, there tend, there seems to be a lot of layoffs in the sector. And in fact, this article, well, I gave a percentage, I don't have it in front of me, but a large percentage of uh, layoffs happening uh, in the ed tech sector. Uh, but the article talks about how, you know, maybe education technology isn't doing so well and their business model is crumbling because while they have all this shiny coding and excitement around them, they're failing to demand, you know, to deliver in terms of learning outcomes. So there's a whole bunch of technologies that look flashy and cool in the classroom, but are they actually delivering on improved learning 
Um, and so that's kind of what this article talks about. So it, it talks about, you know, having uh, true measures of success. So, you know, actually measuring people's people getting better uh, at the task or learning the material and being able to, you know, to track that over time and be able to go back and improve yourself rather than just have kind of like a lipstick usability overhaul, like a slick way to submit, you know, assignments that somebody is going to mark traditionally anyways. Uh, they, they also mention in that this piece, teachers first. So uh, they said yeah. school closures during the, the can school closures during the COVID-19 pandemic was a leapfrog moment for education and ed tech. Uh, teachers face stressful times during COVID-19. Totally understand. I know many teachers, and that's what I've heard consistently, uh, when they had to learn new technology and then keep their students engaged. So they're kind of pinned in two things. They have to learn this tech and keep the students engaged at the same time. And while students, uh, while teachers used EdTech effectively during the pandemic, we will have to find ways to train and motivate them. We have to bring uh, back pride in teaching. Uh, educating with teachers on a frequent basis is one way to motivate them. So I, I get the impression here that they want perhaps maybe more input from educators and teachers um, to some of these, and also probably some of the lead time. Obviously, the pandemic and you know emergency remote instruction isn't a lot of lead time. Um, but ultimately you want some input from educators on how these things are, are supposed to work. You know, one thing that you mentioned about like these layoffs, um, I, I was talking to somebody recently and, um, you know, it's interesting that, uh, if I was uh, in some of these positions, like, let's say for instance, this past week, Shopify has laid off 10% of their workforce. That's a lot. And uh, that is a lot. And I mean, they were growing uh incredibly over the pandemic and you know i wonder and this is maybe something that always happens when when things are good we uh companies they start hiring like crazy uh anticipating the demand and i don't like you say in this article the demand is still there but if i was a cfo of this company maybe first instead of laying off people Maybe there's other costs. And one of the biggest costs that I can think of is office space. Right? I mean, uh, especially with a, a company like Shopify, I mean, they, they've even made the policy of being uh, able to work wherever you want to work. And so they have that remote first type of, uh, or that at least that of option available for people. So what is happening with all these fancy offices that they have? Yeah, I, it's, a, it's a good point. I mean, because there's there's a trade-off. I mean, companies often, like you say, they they kind of default move to layoffs when they run into problems. I think Meta, sorry, I can't get over this. It's Facebook. I mean, nobody calls it Meta, right? But anyways, Facebook Corporation, I refuse to call them Meta. Uh, they're doing, I think they're doing similar layoffs and they had their first negative quarter in a long time, if yeah. not the first ever. And well, it wasn't downs, negative. It was just less negative, less growth. That's right. Yeah, uh, less yeah. growth. So they're not losing money at this point, but yeah. negative, maybe based on the projections, original pro expectations or something, but there's a cost with laying off people. So let's say, you know, you're Shopify, you're some ed tech company and you've, you've been hiring like crazy and maybe you've had some explosion during the pandemic area. And so these people have a lot of experience now. They've been there for a couple of years. They have a lot of knowledge. When you lay people off, you also lay off all their 
collective knowledge, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, office space doesn't have any knowledge. It's the people that are more valuable, like you alluded to. So I, I wonder if that's a very, it's short-sighted on both ends. It's short-sighted to hire like crazy. And it's also short-sighted to lay off all the people who've now built up this experience. So you've experienced that, I'm sure. And I have the places I've worked where somebody that you worked with closely, they're gone and there's not like a succession plan where they documented everything that they knew. And even if they did, it's not exactly the same. Yeah. Well, I mean, in fact, like, let's say with the Shopify example, uh, you know, you look at the cost, Eric. So their, uh, their severance package, they get paid for four months. So 16 weeks, right. they get a, a thousand bucks to go and buy another computer. You know, some of these employees from what I've seen on social media, they were cut off from the Slack. Like they, they've got an email, they were cut off from all their, you know, places where they would have been able to get jobs and uh, uh, connect with their network. So they were not aware of this. And uh, I mean, to the Shopify's credit, they are going and, uh, you know, uh, allowing other tech companies uh, access and referrals. But again, it's like, you know, why did you hire all these people in the first place? And now you've gotten into this uh, situation where you're not growing as, or maybe the, the revenue projections aren't there or what have you. Um, I mean, I personally, I think, uh, uh, what is it? They say that you should uh, hire slow and fire fast. <laughs> and so, uh, and yep. you know, this is where uh, maybe they should have taken some more time and, uh, and I'm sure they're wonderful people, but again, like it's, to have 10%, I mean, that's huge. And well, it's what, not, do we know what, what kind of, was it a lot of customer support too? I think it was uh, right across like various, uh, they had to, they basically kind of trimmed uh, a bunch of different um, roles, but yeah, there, there's a variety of different roles. Um, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's just not, it's going right across all the, the entire tech sector right now, right, where they're doing these massive layoffs. It's been growing crazy for a long time. And I think, you know, the market is saturated. Not all companies do that, right? I mean, one of the reasons universities are often slow to hire, especially permanent employees, is that it's probably hard to get rid of them. <laughs> and they want to make sure that they're good. Or they, 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 go through the they don't want them to be failure, like fail in the tenure system, right? Or if you're a yeah. K-12 teacher, they... You know, they often, I think in Alberta, you have to start out as a substitute first. I think that's the rule. And that's, that's not a bad idea because then you can kind of get a sampling period. So like you said, it's that in education is, I heard this years ago that they said, oh, they don't hire fast enough. They can't meet demand, but they tend not to turn over as many instructors as say the private sector turns over their employees, right? So there's an advantage to that because it's expensive to hire people. It takes a lot of time. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's a, it's it's a expensive on both sides. I mean, even to now uh, get all, rid of all these uh, uh, people through the layoffs. I mean, uh, there's a cost associated with that too. Yeah, so, but it's probably a good segue to the McKinsey and Company article. Did you want to maybe? Uh, kick us off with that just at a high level. This is kind of a long yeah. one, so I actually haven't looked at it quite as closely as I could have. But there's some interesting points. Yeah, I thought this was good. I mean, it is a kind of a good segue. Yeah. The title is uh, "Demand for Online Education is Growing and Are Providers Ready?" And you know, it is a 
it's just recent uh, here at, uh, you know, July 20th that was released, but they talked about uh, some major market forces um, and then going through five strategic moves that could unlock opportunities. And uh, for some of that, um, one thing that they identified was just meeting the student and labor market needs. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about this before, uh, especially one of the, the reasons why people go to acad- uh, as a, enroll as a student is to find some sort of gainful employment. Um, you know, and uh, part of that, their second uh, uh, point was providing career planning and coaching services for these uh, students so that they can be successful. Uh, revolutionize employer relations. So having that closer partnership between academia and uh, the eventual industry employers. I thought this fourth point was kind of a a good one for us as, uh, you know, our podcast, but delivering a distinctive learning experience. Um, And uh, the the fifth was uh, building a bold and differentiated brand. And so these are their kind of points that they have. Uh, They've done a report that you can go and download. uh, uh, But uh, I think it is interesting, like, uh, especially for an opportunity right now, which it's, I look at it from our perspective, you know, here I am, we're going to be returning to the campus, uh, you know, in about a month's time. But every single course assuming that we're all going to be back face-to-face, there is no online option for the courses. Mm -hmm. They're all face-to-face. And it just makes me wonder, like, especially this past uh, spring semester, because I taught both in the classroom and online, and I found a mass exodus of the students going and switching from the face-to-face over and transferring into the online section. And when I, I spoke to students, they wanted that flexibility uh, because they were working and trying to earn some income and so on. And uh, I, I, again, I, I think it's kind of interesting, like beyond, uh, I mean, here, this McKinsey article, they talk about even just creating like a distinctive uh, experience for the students and so on and so forth, but we're not even providing the options whatsoever. And I don't know if uh, this is just across the, the courses that I know of that I'm going to be teaching. Yeah. Well, you make an interesting point about, you know, the experience and the, and and I think it was under point two. So that transform career planning and coaching services that's somewhat related to the, the experience and the labor, because they did, they had that bar graph that talks about why people in, in an online environment, I'm assuming this is all online, what triggered them to consider additional education. Right. And so um, they have current career or career search is stalling as number one, pivotal life, pivotal life event is number two, looking to build a community. I'm surprised that one is so high is number three, but there's 35, uh, this, you know, I guess 35, well, it's not percent, 35 respondents, um, family or friend, family member or friend took a, you know, a, a pro that similar thing. Um, so there's all these reasons why people go back back to school. And so those are the, the, the things that trigger them to go back. But then of course, just even though that there's that trigger, there's still limits on, can they come to a campus and, or should they, or do they want to have, you know, maybe one day a week on a campus and, you know, the other two days a week online for, 
you know, let's say the cost of gas and parking and commuting and all that stuff, even the cost of public transit is higher because of course public transit's costs go up when, when the fuel goes up too. So there's this interchange between the reasons that trigger someone to go, which triggers the demand. And of course we have this kind of tumultuous economy that would trigger demand to go into education. But at the same time, it's limited options for how to uh, satisfy that demand, which is interesting to me. You would think that this would be uh, a no-brainer to respond to. Yeah. Actually, on a side note, uh, I was chatting with somebody from the University of Lethbridge, and so they have a Calgary campus here. Mm -hmm. And for the, the courses that they offer, so they actually rent space from Bow Valley College, all their courses for the business um, degree that they have, they're in the evenings or on the weekend. And again, that's to in response to uh, the students probably working during the day. Very interesting. And is that a new policy or do you, has that always been the case, like pre-pandemic? I, I think it was always the case. Uh, I just yeah. wasn't as familiar with uh, their offerings here. But um, yeah, it was, it was kind of interesting because, again, uh, I think they are basically going and satisfying a different uh, maybe demographic or psychographic uh, for their, uh, you know, student population. Um, so yeah, it's a, it is interesting, but yeah. I... Well, it, it's a, it's a good strategy. I mean, the McKinsey report, I mean, I think this is, a, this is American based, but it, it talks about, um, well, it talks about completion rates, but I think, I think the report even reported that, you know, there was a 3% decline in enrollment, which isn't a huge number in universities total enrollments for universities, but an 11% increase enrollment at the largest online institutions. That's, that's a pretty big spread, right? Like a, like a fifth, what is that? 14 point spread um, between the two. So there, you know, an, a good compromise, if you're doing a face-to-face -face program online or, you know, weekends and the evening, isn't a bad idea. Yeah. You know, it's interesting too, Chris, I, I keep thinking about this idea of uh, the, the integrate skill building and degree attainment to meet student and labor market needs, but also this um, kind of idea of employer relationships and the coaching services kind of points one, two, and three uh, are very interjoined to me because in my experience, there's been a lot of discussions about this, both in Alberta, but in other places about having a little bit more and this is around the, the, the context of accountability, but a little bit more integration or design of programs that meet, you know, labor market needs that perhaps listen to employers and what they're looking for. And I understand it, but there's a, a huge amount of resistance to this as well, which has always kind of surprised me that the idea that um, some people are very opposed to reaching out to the labor market, that's not the responsibility of education. Uh, but at the same time, when I looked at that report and I look at the reasons why people go back to school, particularly if they already have education, and they need to upgrade. It's because they lost their job or they had a major life changing event or they needed a skill to get a, a, a promotion or a raise. I mean, those are very practical reasons. Right. So it, at the very least, you know, that let's say top up education. You would think would be directly related to a particular skill that they're missing, maybe even if they have some sort of general foundation, like an undergraduate liberal arts degree, let's say. And so 
do you think that that resistance in uh, kind of working with the uh, the labor market is ever going to change, or is that just kind of ingrained? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it is kind of uh, unusual uh, if you think about it. Like here, as you mentioned, like I mean, there's life events that happen for mm-hmm. the students to actually you know, looking at pursuing and basically making their life better. But for whatever reason, we don't look at that. And uh, I mean, even to your point, like Eric, I mean, uh, I could see an opportunity, let's say, for instance, like you're talking, I I like your term of the top up. A lot of people don't, and we don't advertise this, right, as uh, universities, but let's say, um, I don't know, if, uh, if I wanted to go and from business, and I wanted to get into software, Sure. Right. Make the transition into tech. Well, guess what? You don't have to do a completely new degree. A lot of those credits can uh, take and, uh, you know, account for the courses that you would have to do. And I, I don't know what the the rate would be, but maybe you could actually do a degree in about a year. Or two right? years. Another degree most, maybe. or two years. Right. But again, we just we don't talk about it. We don't you know, we, we don't make it easy. Uh, from an institutional standpoint, um, uh, just to have that uh, ability. I mean, the only thing that I know of, there was a degree uh, that was created at the, and I think we've chatted about this in the past, but at the University of Calgary, where they did as a pilot during, uh, I think it was prior to the pre-pandemic, but where they allowed students who had an engineering background so you had a bachelor's, it could be in anything, maybe it's like petroleum engineering. And now you could go and do a one-year master's and get a master's in software engineering. And it was pretty intensive and they did it as a pilot, they've extended it. But again, these are certain things that, that I think we should look at um, meeting those demands of ultimately as the students. Or even, you know, certificates that, you know, ladder into or make the assumption that the person coming in has some sort of undergraduate. Like I see a lot more institutions offering, especially online institutions offering graduate certificates online. And these certificates also tend to ladder into, you know, a master's if that's what you want, but you don't have to commit to that. I think that's another thing that scares people away too. This idea that, well, maybe you need to accomplish something very specific, but they're asking you to commit to a degree which as you alluded, has all of the the electives and all the stuff that you don't wanna do because you're just trying to solve maybe a more direct or specific problem. Yeah. And even that, it's uh, that whole, uh, like uh, across different institutions and the transfer of credits, it's just so complex. Like uh, even I've heard like some uh, students, um, and again, I'm not sure of the policies behind this, but they'll go and take, uh, if it just works better for their schedule, maybe they'll go and take some uh, courses as a uh, unclassified open um, student at Athabasca because it is online. But mm-hmm. again, this is where I'm not sure how easy it is to transfer over. I, I know back in the day when I did my undergrad, like, you know, now it's uh, over 20 years ago, it was quite the complex uh, process. And um, I would imagine it's still probably very complex. I found it hard to navigate in, in the mid 2000s when I was doing mine. And uh, 
I would hope that it's easier now, but I'm, I'm not so sure. Thankfully, I haven't had to do a degree for <laughs> quite a few years, a decade, so almost a decade. Uh, so that's that's not such yeah. a bad thing. But I uh, like your idea a, too, or even just like having like maybe these like, you know, stackable certificates that could go and maybe ladder into some sort of like degree or whatever, and you don't have to worry about the commitment and take your time and have that flexibility. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw a, B, a BCIT has a bunch of programs that I've seen recently, just looking for my own interests that have, yeah, you know, well, they're online diplomas or certificates, they kind of, you know, assume some of them assume that people already have education. So they're kind of, like I said, a top up, I don't really know another way to describe it. And they, you can complete the any, the, any of the courses, uh, you can take them in any order, and you have as long as you want to complete them, and then you declare that you've completed it and then you receive your certificate where other places, you know, maybe they have a bit of a timeline, uh, but they say, okay, you have a master's degree or you have a degree. So here's a certificate that you can do. If you want to ladder this into more, you just have to um, decide that. And I, I think, I don't, I don't, I think you can maybe even ladder it after you've received the certificate. I don't know if you have to do it before you've, uh, you know, declared graduation or not, but it's interesting. I think that's a good idea because yeah, not everybody, sure. not everybody needs a master's degree. Not everybody needs to complete an entire degree or at least not to get their foot in the door. Right. And, and it, it's a lot of upfront opportunity costs. So I, I like seeing that flexibility. Um, there was an article an, an opinion piece by uh, a, a gentleman named uh, Jeff Johnson, who was a former superintendent of schools? I'm assuming in the, the Victoria, British Columbia area, era because or area because this is, or at least Vancouver Island or the Lower Mainland, because this is the Times Colonist, which is the, the newspaper of Victoria. And so the, the title of the article is We Need to Ensure Education Technology Doesn't Amplify Inequality, which is kind of highlights many of the things that uh, you and I said about, you know, it's great to have all this technology, it's this huge industry. Uh, you know, it's packed the room with technology, 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 technology solves, technology solves all problems. There's no downsides. But then, of course, there's uh, some inequalities here because, you know, the, if you're relying on uh, remote activities, you have to have good bandwidth. You know, we both have good bandwidth, but even we struggle because we're recording, right? So if, if, if you can't afford good bandwidth, you're at a disadvantage. You know, how fast is the computer? Do you, is there a software uh, that you have to pay for, et cetera? So, We've talked about that, and we predicted that that would continue to be a problem. One of the other things that was interesting in this article was that, and I'll quote here, it says, there's, is the pedagogical question about how much of a prop technology should be for a student? It seems no, so, not so long ago, there was a debate about, about whether certain types of calculators, I remember this debate, should be allowed in the classroom since they essentially solved problems for students who struggled with math. And so this is the same may be true for software apps that supply quick accessible answers for problems that a student should actually be thinking about in greater depth. So teachers worry that while technology is engaging on a creative level, on a creative level, students may be missing out on internalizing basic concepts. Uh, he talks about particularly math and language, because those are areas where technology can kind of provide you with a shortcut. Yeah, and I mean, I think those are really good points. Like I, I'll tell you back, and again, this is like now twenty-five years, let's say, but. Um, you know, when I went and um, 
actually even maybe more than that. When I did my um, high school, I did in India. And so here's my little personal fact, I guess, like a personal life fact, but we did not use calculators whatsoever. And uh, when I came back here, back to Canada, uh, it was uh, it was so funny to me. Like here, not only were we allowed to use calculators, but we were allowed to use computers for some of our uh, tests, and uh, you know, and for some of our classwork. And you know, here I am, I, I can go and just crunch it in my head, and I was just that much further along, mm-hmm. right? And so, in in a lot of respects, I think we might be, you know. Uh, kind of uh, putting the population uh, and doing a bit of a disservice. I mean, I was chatting with um, my neighbor just the, the other day about this as well, just even with kids um, uh, in high school and stuff. And the, like, they're, they're just so reliant on technology. They can't even do the most basic calculation anymore. Yeah, I'm probably in the same boat. I haven't done, I should test myself with basic arithmetic and division and see, but I probably lost some of it because it's so easy to look up or ask a voice assistant to do it for me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And again, it's like, yeah, it's funny because even like you were talking about using like the Amazon Echo or what have you, uh, but how much more effort really is it to go and, you know, do it yourself or, you know, make, just search something or whatever, but yeah, now we're probably less because, because when I type it into a search, it actually works. I don't have to explain it to this thing like 10 times because it's, it's a fool. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> it's probably more work and it's more of a novelty. That's, yeah. that's my theory. Um, we do have a couple of uh, articles that are more on, on just what's happening in technology. Like in the past, you know, these are, we have ed specific stories and now these are the technology specific stories. I, I think we could probably run through these pretty quick. There's some a few updates that may be relevant uh, to to people in schools or in in higher education. So Google Maps, uh, this is from Ars Technica. There's also a TechCrunch link that we'll put in the show notes. Is getting 3D imagery on mobile uh, maps as well as detailed biking info and more. So I thought this was interesting simply because. Um, you know, maps are often used in an educational context in a classroom. So these, you know, they call it SimCity-like immersive view is launching. And so these incredibly detailed kind of 3D rendered uh, visualizations of cities and stuff like this is, is coming to Google Maps, which I thought was, which was pretty cool, as well as Street View coming to places like India. But, um, you know, looking at, I remember Apple rolled this out. Um, you know, for, uh, you know, the, the 3D maps, but this takes it a step further because you can change the weather, you can change the time of day and the shadows on the buildings change. And they even did a demo of what it would look like inside certain buildings. Uh, that's kind of creepy. I guess if you can go inside the buildings, I'm assuming that they're for maybe historic reasons or, you know, popular landmarks or things like that. Um, but that was that was pretty neat. I know a lot of people who do geography or do kind of population studies, they use a lot of mapping tools to demonstrate. So that was a cool update. Also biking directions, if you're me and you cycle to work, uh, I'm always in favor of improved cycling directions. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, Google is bringing a video editor and virtual uh, desks to Chromebooks. I'm most interested that there's a video editor uh, coming to Chromebooks. I mean, so historically the Chromebook has been a really good educational tool. Uh, 
But because it's basically a Chrome browser-based operating system, uh, there, there's some serious disadvantages compared to particularly like a MacBook Air, which comes with iMovie and the ability to make videos. So if, if students at any level are required to do any sort of creative production work, audio or video, uh, this has posed a challenge, particularly video. So it, this is a, a welcome addition. Uh, there, my guess is that it's probably a fairly uh, simple movie. It looks like it's you know kind of built into the the gallery app, um, but apparently it's going to have uh, themes. Um, you know, do clips. Um, you could do things like that. So you know, having a good um, video editor in Chromebooks, I think, is a an advantage, particularly for K to twelve, who is more likely to roll out or roll out uh, Chromebooks uh, on a one-on-one -on -one basis to students, is uh, you know, along with Google Workspace and the Google Suite. Yeah, I think that is certainly. I mean, that is one of the limitations, uh, just from a processing power standpoint, uh, with the the Chromebook. So, I mean, it's great that they're providing this service now. Yeah, it's a welcome update, and I don't know which Chromebook server it's going to support. I'm not a Chromebook user myself, but it, it looked good. Related to Chromebooks and totally other news, this came out, uh, this is from the 18th. This is a TechCrunch article. Denmark bans Chromebooks and Google Workspace in schools over uh, data transfer risks. So I'll just quote a piece from this. So it says, Denmark is effectively banning Google services in schools after officials in the municipality of Halsingor, I'm terrible at pronouncing this. My Scandinavian heritage doesn't help me at all here. Uh, <laughs> we're last year ordered to carry out a risk assessment around processing of personal data by Google. In a verdict published last week, Denmark's data protection agency, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, uh, revealed that data processing involving students using Google's cloud-based workspace software suite which includes Gmail, Google Docs, Calendar, and Google Drive, does not meet the requirements of the European Union's GDPR data privacy regulations. Specifically, the authority found that the data processor agreement or Google's terms and conditions seemingly allow for data to be transferred to other countries for the purpose of providing support, even though that the data is ordinarily stored in one of Google's EU data centers. So as a result of data flows and the concerns around privacy, these Google services no longer work there. Now, I'm assuming they would work if you had an, a VPN. Yeah, probably, but I guess, again, uh, I think this is more, especially in the, the school system. So, I mean, it, it kind of further uh, connects to the original thing that we talked about in terms of surveillance and privacy. Yeah, so we're seeing uh, countries like Denmark and other probably to follow soon European countries crack down on this. So it'll be interesting to see what we do in support. Um, now, Chris, we we not that long ago we talked about your Mac Mini because yeah. you have an Apple Silicon Mac Mini. So that's you're pretty happy with that still, aren't you? It's holding up. Yeah, yeah. Haven't any? I've had a, it did crash like a couple of times, but. Even the crash, it's a, the funniest like thing. Basically, it'll crash, and then it boots up right right away. <laughs> so it's, like instantly, like, probably like pretty much instantly, and then you just have to log back in. But yeah, I don't know what happened there. Uh, but uh, all in all, I mean, it's a yeah, uh, for all the work that I'm doing, uh, I haven't had any issues. 
Yeah. And it's, a, I've heard it's a great product. It's actively cooled, which helps. And one of the things I've been looking for is, is there a windows equivalent? The Mac yeah. mini is pretty hard to beat in terms of price. It's a, it's a great computer. You know, even the upgrade to 16 gigs of Ram is pretty reasonable given that you'll never have to change it. But I have never found until recently any indication that there'd be a good windows alternative, but there is the Intel NUC, which is kind of a, you know, a small desktop mini PC. I think it's largely aimed at, you know, the, the education market, but also probably mass office rollout as well. And so the NUC, uh, this is from tech radar. And they said that Intel NUC 12 could be a mini PC powerhouse, even, and even play AAA games. So um, they're talking about the NUC 12, and which will be using 12th generation Intel Alder Lake CPU and the most recent ARC 7 GPUs. So the, the ARC series are these GPUs that um, Intel is developing to kind of improve their built-in uh, graphics performance, which isn't just useful for games. It's good for any uh, graphics heavy application. It could be photo editing, could be a bunch of stuff. Um, but it looks like uh, these computers, given the new CPUs that are coming out, may be a, you know, a, a relatively decent competitor to Apple's entry-level Silicon Max. And it doesn't surprise me. I kind of always assumed that you know, Apple Silicon would be really great when it first came out, and they would have a huge lead. And then that, that lead would probably diminish over time because of course there's pressure on the, the other chip makers to develop something equivalent. So amazingly, despite only, I think it was it Chris, only a few years ago, Intel had just totally stalled. Yeah, well, they're coming out of the gate real quick in terms of competition with Apple. So whatever Apple did sure has lit a fire <laughs> under Intel because their latest chips run cooler. They run a lot better. They're very competitive. Uh, in many cases, more powerful, particularly the, the higher end. So this is exciting. I think this is a good alternative. I don't know how much what the prices will be, but I'm hoping that this is a good, maybe even a student desktop or a faculty desktop. Yeah. And I guess the last uh, tech article that we have is that Apple has released a new lockdown mode uh, in iOS 16 that could protect against uh, cyber attacks. So again, it's uh, that privacy kind of... Uh, centric um, approach um, and uh, you know I, I think it's going to be a continued uh, topic that comes out yeah i was kind of i've heard about lockdown mode i kind of uh because it's the summer and i've been doing you know household stuff it's kind of i haven't looked into the details of it but the cena article gave uh a decent breakdown into what lockdown mode does which was helpful because i, I found it to be convoluted so I guess if you turn lockdown mode on, uh, most message attachments other than images are blocked. So you can't get texted attachments anymore. I guess you couldn't get a PDF of malware. Uh, it says web technologies. So, you know, just in time JavaScript are disabled. Uh, incoming invitations and service requests. So that's FaceTime calls are blocked. All shared albums and photos are removed. Any wired connections on your phone and computer are blocked. So I guess you can't plug anything into it. Configuring profiles is blocked and you can't enroll in mobile device management. And so I guess anything that supports the latest iOS 
iPad OS, Mac OS 16 uh, will have uh, some sort of lockdown mode. So right now these operating systems are still in beta, right? Yeah, yeah, I believe so. So would you use lockdown mode? I don't know. I mean, it's uh, part of it is the, like you were saying, like even being able to go and text a, an image or a file that's, that is. Well, images look okay. It looks like images are the one thing, oh, <laughs> the okay. only well, attachment that you could send. But like, I guess if you're going through an airport security, you can just turn on lockdown mode. Though <laughs> <laughs> no, that seems inconvenient. Does it re-download all the shared albums that were lost? Does it reconnect everything? Like, I guess I'm trying to understand what the situation is. You're kidnapped. And you have just enough time to put the phone in lockdown mode. Like, what is the situation that you're using this for? Yeah, I mean, I again, I'm not exactly sure. I guess we'll we'll see what they're going to be developing in the future. But um, yeah, if you're identified as a national security threat, you put your phone in lockdown mode. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. It's an interesting idea. I guess if you're in a sensitive situation, you can't do it remotely. I don't think, which is, which is what I was hoping for. Like maybe you could put your phone in lockdown mode if you lost it from another Apple device, but I don't think that's the case. That's what I originally thought. Cause then you, yeah, could, that's what I was you can thinking too. You could remote wipe. Like if I've lost something, it doesn't really help me if I can't lock it down until I get access. Right. But with that, uh, we have a lot to talk about in terms of our discussion items today. So we have a couple of books to talk about. And so I have a short one, but Chris, did you want to talk about your latest book that you've been reading this summer? Yeah, so I listened to uh, Atomic Habits by James Clear. And so uh, he's pretty well regarded. And I guess both of our books are related to productivity. So I think especially for people maybe uh, over the summer, they might be thinking about some uh, things that they want to change in terms of their uh, workflow or what have you. And um, I'll just kind of go through some of uh, the notes that I took, but um, you know, with this book, uh, there's the the surprising power of atomic habits, and a lot of times we convince ourselves that there is, uh, you know, to have massive success, it requires massive action, and in fact, the inverse is true. So small improvements accumulate, and they turn out to remarkable results. And a lot of the habits that we form, they're they're um, the compound interest of self-improvement and, you know, even a 1% improvement can have tremendous results. And uh, it's just like with compound interest, like the, you know, the same way that money multiplies, the mm -hmm. effects of your habits will multiply as you repeat them. And so th this 1%, the kind of the mentality that you want to get into is just even just 1% better every day. And with that, you'll be able to go and feel the effects of these small habits compound over time. And, um, you know, they may not seem to make too much of a, a difference on any given day, but over the months and the years, these changes could be enormous. And so a slight change in your daily habits, they can guide your life to a, a very different uh, destination. So it's making that choice, that 1% better or worse, uh, seems insignificant in the moment, but over the lifetime, it could be a, a huge difference of who you are and who you could be. And um, the time magnifies uh, the margin between success and failure. It, um, it'll help you multiply whatever you feed into it. Um, in terms of your good habits, you should 
those will make your time your ally and those bad habits, they basically make uh, time your en enemy. And so some of the, the things that you can look at from a, a positive compounding aspect, there's productivity. So just accomplishing, let's say one extra task it might be just a small feat in a regular day, but it could account for a lot over your entire career. Uh, same thing with in terms of knowledge, learning one new idea won't make you a genius, uh, but uh, you know that commitment to lifelong learning can be transformative. Uh, with relationships, uh, people reflect your behavior back to you, and uh, the more you help others, the more others will want to help you. Uh, from a negative compounding aspect, uh, the stress uh, there's certain common causes of stress that can be manageable. And, uh, and if you don't take these into account, they may persist over for years. And these uh, little stresses uh, can compound into maybe some serious health issues. And same thing for like negative thoughts. If you think yourself as being maybe worthless or stupid and so on, you may actually have more of a, a condition to interpret your life that way. And the same is uh, uh, true for how you think about others. Uh, you wanna go and have, think about more in terms of your systems as opposed to goals. So goals are maybe the results that you wanna achieve, but the systems are the processes that are gonna lead you to those results. And so the goals are good for helping you develop and set a direction but the systems are best for making progress and uh, you know the purpose of setting these goals it might be to be winning the game and the purpose of building systems is to allow you to continue playing that game and so uh, in terms of that system of uh, atomic habits uh, if you're having trouble changing your habits the problem isn't you the problem is your system and so if you you don't uh, rise to the level of your goals, uh, you will fall uh, to the level of your systems. And so then uh, the author, uh, James, he goes and has four different steps, simple steps that you can go and use. Um, and uh, maybe one of the links I will include is some of the uh, resources that um, uh, James Clear provides on his website. Uh, but these four simple steps, they're ultimately the purpose of habits is to solve problems uh, of your life with as little energy or effort as possible. And so uh, a habit is simply, it's a behavior repeated enough times to become automatic. Uh, this habit formation is incredibly useful because of the conscious mind is the bottleneck of your brain. When you have these habits dialed in uh, and the basics of life are handled and done, your mind is free to focus on challenges and master the next set of problems. So he talks about this concept of a habit loop. And so the cue, it triggers a craving. So the cue is step one. It'll go and trigger a craving, which then motivates a response, which provides a reward which satisfies that craving and ultimately becomes associated with that cue. So kind of like Pavlov's dog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, so um, uh, the way that uh, what he describes, uh, he has four different laws uh, in terms of creating a good habit. And so the first is uh, that cue, making it obvious, that craving. Second law is make it attractive. Third is the response will make it easy. The fourth law is the reward uh, and make it satisfying. And so these laws uh, can also be inverted to help you 
learn how to break a bad habit. And so uh, to break a bad habit, the, the law is, a, again, that first law of, uh, is the cue, so make it invisible. The craving, make it unattractive. The response, make it difficult. The reward, make it unsatisfying. And so whenever you want to go and change your behavior, simply ask, you know, how can I make it obvious? How can I make it attractive? How can I make it easy? How can I make it uh, satisfying? And with this awareness, uh, it actually helps us. I think that, you know, our biggest challenge in terms of changing that habit is just maintaining that awareness of what we're doing, why we're doing it. And he's actually developed a, a habit scorecard as well. So again, you can go and, um, you know, uh, look at it. Uh, he has a worksheet and you can score various habits. So, I mean, you could just go through your basic day, maybe wake up, you know, is that a positive or a neutral or a bad habit, turning off your alarm, checking your phone, probably checking your phone is probably, you know, a negative habit. Taking a shower is probably positive. So waking up, turning off your alarm is neutral. Then he has, he introduces this uh, concept of habit stacking. So this is where you take your first, uh, you know, uh, the formula is like taking your current habit, and then you're going to go and take a new habit. So an example that he gave is like maybe uh, for meditation. So he's going to pour a, a cup of coffee in the morning and then meditate for one minute. Same thing could be for, let's say, exercise. Maybe you take off your work shoes and then immediately change into your workout clothes. All right, so tying that in. And uh, to be honest, like even some of the things that I've done uh, over the last little while. So uh, I wake up in the morning, I let out my dogs. And then I'll, while I'm waiting for my dogs to come back in, I grab a book that I want to read. And then I go back up and I place that book on my night table. And so just by having that book there, now I can go and break the cycle of maybe instead I would have looked at my smartphone before going to sleep, uh, just mindlessly going through maybe social media or responding to emails. Now I don't do that break that habit and instead because the book is on my uh, night table i'll actually be going and reading as opposed to going and looking at my phone so kind of um making a physical you know putting something in so you'll it'll be in front of you right? exactly but what he, what we've done is in terms of this habit stacking so i've tied it now this is something that i do every day with regards to letting out my dogs i do that but now I've tied in the fact that I go and take a look at my bookshelf and then put it back on my night table afterwards. Right. And so it, it's kind of an interesting like approach. Like you're basically tying these, um, these habits uh, and that's what he's talking about with that habit stacking. And, you know, and part of it, so this is what he, what he's described as designing your environment for success and so, you know, you got to stop thinking about your um, environment as being filled with objects and start thinking it being more filled with relationships and how you interact with the spaces. And, you know, uh, some of these, uh, uh, these habits can be maybe easier also in terms of a new environment. So maybe you can go to a, a coffee shop or maybe a bench in the park or uh, a room that you maybe don't use, and then you can establish a new routine there. So this is some, some of the, the recommendations that he uh, says. Uh, in terms of secret of uh, self-control, there's uh, 
there, there are people that have like self-control and they're able to use it, but it's a lot easier to practice self-restraint when you don't have to use it that often. And, you know, again, by creating a more disciplined environment, it'll probably make it that much easier for you to uh, avoid that temptation and then resist it. So um, if you have, if you don't want to eat as many cookies, you shouldn't have cookies all over your house. <laughs> totally. Right. And, uh, and I don't mean to simplify, even, but that's what I think of, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. And so uh, again, these are just some of the, the basic, uh, you know, a lot of times we have these like habits um, uh, and uh, like you say, like now you can just by going and taking those cookies and maybe, or maybe not even getting cookies or putting them in a different spot. Right. Uh, the other thing is, um, uh, he talked about like making it attractive. So, uh, how can you make that habit irresistible? And, uh, the key, mm -hmm. uh, takeaway is that, you know, that dopamine is released, not only when you experience pleasure, but when you also anticipate it. And so this is where he, he talks about, um, you know, with like gambling addicts where they get a, a dopamine spike right before they place the bet. Uh, and not actually after winning. And, you know, he talks about cocaine addicts and, and so on and so forth. And so uh, I guess the, the main point, what he's looking at is using the way that human uh, brain actually functions and the, the neural cir circuitry is allocated for wanting rewards um, as opposed to liking them. And so again, this is where you can maybe having that some of the that temptation bundling uh, can make your habits a little bit more uh, attractive. Um, so some examples, for instance, I don't know, maybe you want to go and hear about the latest celebrity gossip, but you also want to get in shape. So what you could do is from a temptation bundling aspect is maybe you can only go and read the tabloids or watch reality shows while you're in the gym. Hmm. Right. Uh, you can also look at uh, having people like your family or friends uh, help shape your uh, habits. And, um, you know, again, it's a lot easier to adopt those habits if we're praised and approved of by the culture that we have uh, in terms of that tribe. Uh, a lot of times we'll try to imitate the habits of uh, our various social groups. So like the close family friends, there could be the many uh, in terms of the tribe, the powerful. And so uh, this is where your, your desired behavior is the normal behavior and you already have something in common with that group. Um, you can go and find and fix causes of bad habits. Um, so let's say for instance, um, exercise, instead of telling yourself that you need to go for a run in the morning, you could go and just flip it and say, it's time to build endurance and get fast. Uh, if it's finance, you know, saving money is often associated with sacrifice, but how can you associate with maybe freedom rather than limitation? If you uh, realize the one simple truth that maybe living below your current status means increase in future means. And so the money that you're saving this month will actually increase your future purchasing power next month. Interesting. That's a good way to look at it. It, it also reminds me kind of um, the environment, uh, our, uh, we've spoken about Cal Newport a number of times on the podcast, but he talks about rituals to yeah. get you into the feeling of doing something. So it's, it's similar, but it's, I like the way this is described better than rituals, the building rituals, 
The physicality is interesting. I really like the Stephen Pressfield, as you know, the, he, he wrote the book, The War of Art, which is all about uh, creative endeavors and how people encounter resistance. And he, he has a whole book called Do the Work, which talks about resistance. And he talks about it as this dragon that's always telling you you're terrible and you should quit. And every day you have to battle this resistance. And But one of the books he just released, and I haven't read it, is called uh, Put Your Ass Where Your Heart Wants to Be, which is creating a, a location, like putting yourself in the place where that has to happen. Like you're not going to get fit if you're not in a gym or you're not in a place where you can work out yeah. or you, if, like you said, or putting the book to read it. Like if you want to read the book, you have to be in the place where you read it in the book. Right. Yeah, exactly. Wanting to do it isn't, isn't, isn't going to do anything. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the author, he even mentions that as well as that you might want to have separate physical and, you know, we've talked about this even with uh, Cal Newport, but you might want to have a space for where you work and you just get in the zone when you get into that physical space. Same thing goes for, you know, working out or what have you. Um, but, you know, to that point, uh, his third law is make it easy. And so you want to go and uh, focus on figuring out what the, the best approach is going to be, because uh, otherwise you're never going to go and get around to it and actually take action. So he wants to, you know, people to focus in on motion versus action. And uh, the main difference between motion and taking action is that, you know, they, the two ideas sound similar, but they're not. When you're in motion, you're planning, strategizing and learning. And those are all good things, but they don't actually produce a result. Whereas action, on the other hand, is uh, the type of behavior that will deliver an outcome. And so if, uh, if your motion doesn't lead to results, why do we do it? More often than not, we do it because the motion allows us to feel like we're making progress without running the risk of failure. And so, uh, you know, most of us are experts at avoiding criticism. Uh, if, if it doesn't feel good to fail, uh, or to be judged publicly. And so we avoid situations where this might happen. And this might be one of the, the biggest reasons why you might slip into motion rather than taking action uh, is that you want to delay that failure. Uh, so he talks about going and uh, doing, focusing more on repetition versus perfection. You know, and so this is where uh, if you want to master that habit, the key is that repetition, not the, the perfection. So you don't need to map out every feature of the new habit. You just need to practice it. And so if you use the analogy of working out, it's, you're basically trying to get your reps in, right? The more you repeat that action, the more you're activating that particular neural uh, circuit associated with that habit. And uh, so just simply putting in those reps is one of the, the most critical steps for you to encode that new habit so you to just, just to, i just want to make sure i'm understanding this so just as because i haven't read this book but i'd like to yeah so you have you create a habit by and he, through the things that you laid out so you have kind of this reward mechanism you want to be as easy as possible and then something that that's simple enough that you can do on a regular basis and then later on you can tie these habits together if that's done properly ideally you want to then that habit you want to occur as frequently as possible because that's an action. And so doing it every day is more important than let's say spending all your time planning and never doing it 
or, you know, that's what, I think that's what he gets at with the goals. That's yeah. what you're saying, right? So you can do all this goal planning. You can do strategizing. You could make your quarterly goals and maybe that's a good idea, but if you don't, it would be better to maybe have simpler goals or not even think them out as, as much detail. Maybe just be like, this is my goal. You'll tweak it later, but now you need to get on to how you're going to actually implement it. And so that's where the habits come in. Yeah. And, and again, to that point, like Eric, in terms of uh, you want to achieve it as much as possible with a, a, the least amount of effort, but mm -hmm. at the same time, we want to get out of our mind that, you know, again, we kind of think, okay, we're going to do all this planning and stuff, but let's say, for instance, how I mentioned to you about reading a book, even if it's just one page, one page is better than zero. Right. And so even if you, it could be a habit that could be completed in a few seconds, but you know, that will allow you to shape the actions that might take uh, minutes or hours afterwards. And the, a lot of those habits, like they're going to go and, you know, um, it, it's almost a decisive moment for you to go and make that choice, that fork in the road that sends you in the direction of either a productive or maybe an unproductive day. And, uh, you know, some of the things that he, he even mentions is like, you know, it could be a two minute rule, which states that when you start a new habit, it should take less than two minutes to do. So start by mastering the first two minutes of that smallest version of that behavior. So as, as I mentioned, like maybe it's just right or reading a few pages, right, of that book and just uh, you know, then as you advance to the next step, you're going to repeat the process, you're going to focus on, uh, you know, the those first two minutes, and then you're going to keep moving to the next level and extending it out. Um, I don't know, let's say if you wanted to, uh, I have a friend of mine, for instance, like, uh, he actually became vegan. And so, you know, if we were going to apply his methodology to this phase one would be, you know, uh, start eating vegetables at every meal. Right. That's just phase one there. Okay. So he hasn't phase, cut anything out yet. Well, no, he's actually gotten to the point, but I'm just telling you like no, but at that point, can, that's what I mean. Yeah. Just yeah. incorporate it. So now you're just in, including vegetables. Phase two would be stop eating animals with four legs. Maybe then maybe phase three is to stop eating animals with two legs. So before you cut out maybe uh, cows, pigs, and lamb, and now you're, you're cutting out chicken and Turkey. Then phase four could be stop eating animals with no legs. So now the, the fish and scallops and whatever. And then phase five is stop eating all animal products. So you slowly start getting sure. into it. Um, and then as a final uh, law, the, the fourth law is uh, make it satisfying. And so this is where the, you know, the cardinal rule of uh, behavior change is whatever is rewarded is repeated and what is punished is avoided. And so you if you, you're more likely to repeat that behavior if you when the experience is satisfying in the human brain it evolves to prioritize immediate rewards over delayed rewards so you want to get in a habit to stick uh, that you need to feel immediately successful even if it's in a small way and uh, you know those first three laws the, the behavioral change like make it obvious make it attractive make it easy those will increase the odds that a behavior will be performed in this time but uh, that fourth law of behavioral change, making a satisfying increasing that the odds that the behavior will be repeated the next day. So uh, one of the things that he suggests is how to stick to these good habits every day is if you miss a day, try to get back into it as quickly as possible. 
And uh, so for instance, let's say if I was going to go and work out and I've made a commitment to working out, I can go and skip a day. So life happens, things happen, but you're going to commit to making sure that you don't miss it the following day and push yourself that way. And uh, again, this could be applied. Like he, he actually gives a lot of uh, examples because he was an athlete himself. Um, uh, he played baseball, uh, but let's say for instance, doing push-ups. You could start off with one push-up, and I'm sure you've seen like there's those 100 day, uh, 100 push-up challenges. But you start off with one, and you slowly start building up. Just don't put a zero there, right? Because those those losses will eat into your compounding. So as long as you're doing something, something is better than nothing. I've heard of that. I don't know. Uh, psychologists talk about it. The idea of that one of the reasons that people fail in their goals is that they don't start from well, this will come up in the book that I want to talk about, but they don't start from zero. I'm not saying accomplish zero. I mean, starting from the lowest common denominator. People, uh, they, you know, they're 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 treating step three like step one, and so the 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 bar isn't low enough to build that habit. Yeah, and uh, I mean, it's a. I've actually since reading this book, I've uh, I've been pushing myself because sometimes you know you get a little bit lazy or whatever. But let's say, for instance, like working out. I have now consistently the most I ever miss is one day. That's and, uh, and so it's, uh, and I feel better about it. And even some of what he talks about too is, uh, you know, um, it's just a different kind of mentality shift as well, because why are the, if we're looking at even just like working out, like there is, there's a certain like immediate benefits that you might have, but really a lot of it is going to be more prolonged, right? Like in terms of developing that strength and getting you up to that level. Uh, it's the same thing for like books. I mean, for the longest time, I haven't really been reading books as much. And instead, uh, I got into this bad habit of just looking at my phone and it probably disrupts my uh, sleep and stuff. So I uh, just by physically having Eric, like just having the book, I just, you know, and this was uh, when I first started reading the or listening to this book here, just by placing it on my night table, it's like, okay, now I have a choice. I can go and pick up my phone or I can pick up that book, right? And which individual do I want to be? And so then it's like, okay, let's power this down. I'm going to go grab the book. And I, in fact, I've already, uh, since doing this, I've already read like a book and a half. That's good. Do you right? keep the phone out of your bedroom? Do you remove it entirely? Well, uh, he does mention this, Eric. Uh, so that that is something that if you find yourself that you just automatically start getting into that habit, maybe just distancing it from yourself if you don't have that self control, and putting that, uh, uh, you know, even if it's for like half an hour or an hour. So, uh, you know, personally, I haven't. I have the charger right next to me, but the thing that I've done is I turn it off. Okay, makes sense. So. Yeah. And again, I've kind of put it as part of uh, whether you call it like uh, Cal Newport's like ritual or what have you, or it's just me going and doing, I, I just look at my routine. And so what I've done now is I let out my dogs at a certain time at night before going to sleep. After that, my next step is I turn on our security system. Then after that, I don't need my phone anymore. So I turn it off. And I put it on the charger and then I pick up that book. So that's, that's how I've been doing it. That's smart. I like it. I'm going to read it. I read the power of habit, which is a very different book. Uh, some, some crossover. 
Yeah. Very and uh, by the way, that link um, that we'll provide uh, in the show notes, uh, if you don't even read the book, there is, uh, a, you know, the author, James Clear, he's actually uh, has a, a place where you can go and sign up and he'll send you emails and, uh, you know, to try to reinforce and give you these steps uh, by email. And so, uh, you know, I'd encourage everybody, uh, you know, even just give that a try. But yeah, I mean, it does make a difference. Like even, uh, again, it's just a mindset uh, kind of shift. And just thinking about it that way, because we even let's say, for instance, like writing a book, you might have this ambitious goal of going and writing a book. But what does it start off with? Just writing one page, right? Like and and just doing yeah. it on a consistent basis. Or the outline. <laughs> or something, right? Something yeah. as opposed to just thinking about it. It is somewhat, I guess it's somewhat related to what I was talking about or the book that I was going to mention, though. And there may be even some counter. <laughs> <laughs> counter arguments listed in this. Oh, okay. That's not my intent, but uh, so I, I was going to talk about this last time, but I, I didn't want to extend our episode too much, but it's called, the book was called effortless, effortless, uh, make it easier to do what matters most. And it was by Greg McEwen. Greg McEwen was famous for a book called essentialism, which was how to say no to things that don't matter and to only doing what's essential. Uh, and he was, you know, had this following about essentialism, you know, uh, Steve Jobs was famous of saying no to ideas more than he said yes. Uh, a lot of people are like that, prioritizing. But he had some difficulties in his life. Uh, he had a family, I think his daughter got really sick. Uh, he, he couldn't essentialize anymore. There was nothing he could let go. And it was still overwhelming. So while his book, previous book held okay. true, it, it didn't change the fact that he couldn't, he couldn't just say, oh, I'm not going to make the hospital visit. Like that doesn't work. Right. So he had to do things. So he, he talked about uh, making things effortless so that, that the, the goal of the book is, you know, essentialism saying yes to things that matter in your life are more important than cluttering them with things that are irrelevant. But ultimately we have to make kind of like what you're talking about with habits, um, that we need to make them as effortless as possible. So I can't cover all the concepts in here, but I'll, I want to cover a, a, a couple. So the first chapter he starts about discussing what if this could be easy? So he says people often make problems harder than they really are. Um, choosing to work harder and kind of just push through like that brute force rather than finding easier methods. So he talks about the value of taking time uh, away from worthwhile activities and finding and always asking the question, is there an easier way to accomplish this? Is this, am I doing this because it's the way it's always been done, for instance, and kind of walking through that exercise. The second chapter, he talks about, okay, similar to atomic habits, what if this could be fun, right? So he talks about a person, I don't know if he knew them or it was a famous person who uh, you know, had to return phone calls. He was a business person who would come back from this trip and have all these phone calls he has to return. And he hated returning phone calls, right? So he would return the phone calls in his hot tub because that made the activity fun because he liked being in the hot tub. So similar yeah. to tying the habit with something, there's some crossover here. Uh, is there a way to make it pleasurable? Yeah. Um, he, he actually talks about habits and rituals. He says, habits explain what you do while rituals explain how you do things. 
So the book focuses more on rituals rather than habits. Habits are things that have been built, but the ritual is kind of how you do the habit. That's how he describes it. Um, and so he talks about uh, bad ideas uh, are priorities that were once, but no longer relevant uh, and take up kind of permanent residence in our brains. So this idea that this is not fun, I don't like this, uh, this is unpleasurable for some reason. Um, and he talks about the, the need to kind of go in and kind of reframe how we think of things. How do we make them fun? How do we rethink it as a positive rather than negative? And we have to clear out this real estate. He talks about how this tends to build up in people's minds and, and leads to things like catastrophization and hopelessness and the reasons that people never get uh, to some of the the uh, things that they really want to do, those essential things. And he goes on to talk about things like the power of letting go, um, you know, just draining of things of energy. He one of the things he does point out, uh, which is in, which has been in the news recently, is this kind of idea of complaining culture. Um, it's very he talks about how it's very easy to be a critic, um, particularly of others who build things. So his argument is that um, a lot of workspaces and our physical environment can cultivate you know, a culture of complaint. Uh, and he, he uses the analogy of viral spread, which is maybe too soon. <laughs> but you know, he talks about that. And so he says a, re a remedy for you know, negative feelings, uh, things that make us unhappy and be critics so that they're holding us back from turning things into positives or being fun is to kind of reverse the complaint so he says uh, one of the habits he or the rituals i guess maybe habit that he recommends is that every time you identify a complaint uh, write or state something uh, that you're thankful for even if it's not necessarily relevant to the complaint and, and over time he says the that habit uh, develops kind of a mindset of gratitude rather than a complaint culture. And he, he goes through a bunch of examples for that. Yeah, no, and, uh, you know, the, this, uh, in Atomic Habits, he actually talks about that as well in terms of the, being gratitude. And, you know, I think that's just probably a common theme. Yeah, the idea that venting and getting into the habit of venting is actually a negative habit, right? And just it's not, doesn't actually solve yeah. a problem. He, he does discuss the art of doing nothing. Um, he says, you know, habits are good, goals are good, but this idea that we should always be in constant motion, um, you know, kind of busy work is not a good idea. So there is time to do nothing and clear our minds out. And he's like, you know, it's interesting that we make time and we allow for meditation and we, you know, we approve these things in society, but we don't approve, you know, sitting in a park and just staring into the distance or something like that, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. Probably, you know, this goes on and on this book. It's probably one of the more important things that he talks about that's not done um, is defining, well, I'll, I'll go to the next chapter first and I'll, I'll go to, so in chapter seven, he talks about when you start something, start with the most first obvious action that needs to happen. But that's not always the case. Sometimes people start, you know, at step three they haven't boiled it down to the lowest common denominator. And so it, it's going to be a lot of tasks just are too overwhelming if you do that. 
And one of the things that I really took away, I mean, there's a lot of great advice in the book, but he discusses that whenever you take on a project, you have to decide what done looks like. And my wife is always telling me that I'll use as much time as I give myself to complete something. Right. So I could give myself nine weeks yeah. or I could give myself a day. Now, you know, if I spend nine weeks solid doing something, maybe it'll be better. But there's also diminishing returns after a certain amount of time. Uh, fail fast. He talks about the need to, to be rubbish. <laughs> he's British. Uh, the, the need to be, or maybe he's Australian. Mm -hmm. I don't remember. I think British. That you know, the, the the courage to be bad and to continue to be bad and to fail frequently is really important. But he says defining what done looks like really matters, even before undertaking something. What is the finished product going to be? Because he says one of the biggest problems is that people have goals. They have things that they want to do. Okay, so we can make it easy. We can build habits. We can build rituals. Uh, but they haven't defined what the finished product is going to be, so they tinker with it forever. And that's why we have project plans uh, where you know all the stakeholders have to sign off on it, all of those things. Because otherwise, um, if you want to make a change, it comes with consequences, right? So he says defining what done is not so much good enough, but defining that this is when I'm going to decide it's finished, that's when it'll be finished. Because nobody else is going to tell us necessarily. I mean, you want to block off things like deep work, like Cal Newport says, but doing something is better than nothing. So there's probably some overlap. So maybe we should trade books. Maybe that's what uh, that should be the strategy. But I really <laughs> yeah, like Greg McEwen's title. I read F, uh, Essentialism, which is excellent. That was published quite a few years ago. But this is a really interesting story. Yeah, I've uh, I've actually uh, put both of your uh, those uh, essentialism and effortless on my uh, to read list. Uh, we can come back to apps and other stuff at another time. Did you want to maybe tell people, Chris, where they can get a hold of you? Yeah, so you can get a hold of me on my website, which is Chris with a K K R I S. Last name is Hans H A N S dot C A, and you'll find my email, social media handles, and so on. And I'm Eric Christensen, and you can contact me at ericchristensen.net. And I also maintain a tech blog, techbytes.net. That's tech-bytes.net. Well, that's great, Chris. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. T take care. You can learn more about EdTech Examined by going to our website, edtechexamined.com. There, you'll find ways to subscribe, as well as host information, our social media accounts, and our blog posts. Our blog posts are also published through Medium on the EdTech Examined publication. You can contact EdTech Examined by emailing us at hey at edtechexamined.com. If you have an EdTech question you'd like us to answer on a future episode, you can email us or reach us through Twitter using the hashtag EdTechOfficeHours. You can find EdTechExamined on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at EdTechExamined, and we also have a LinkedIn page you can follow. Until next time.